good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 16 is where we're going to be today. We are going to camp out, and I mean that, camp out in verse 20. When I began uh, preparing to preach the book of Romans, uh, one of my practices is to sit down and to read through the book cover to cover a number of times. And uh, I actually remember being uniquely struck by this verse on my very first read through. And it's because it's somewhat, it's one of those verses that I think is often misquoted first because it's always quoted in the light and appropriately so of Genesis 3.15. But we don't want to miss what's actually being conveyed here and we don't want to miss the primary intention. This is a powerful verse that I think strengthens our understanding of the church militant and triumphant. Bows and sisters, all throughout redemptive history and throughout the church age, There has been time and time again where it seems as though the church is under the foot of our enemy. This has never been the case. It is often the case that it is perceived as such. I do not deny that. It is often the case that our feeble and frail eyes will look at something and assume that what we are seeing is perhaps a lost battle from our God or perhaps uh, the church is going through a bit of dwindling and frailty. But saints, I I want to remind you today that the church universal, that is the elect of God, have never once been under the boot of Satan since the cross of Christ. It is my hope today, again, as I've mentioned earlier, to embolden us. And my hope, my desire, and the means by which I will hopefully lay out to us the reason we should be emboldened is because the God of peace is actively making war for us. And not only is he actively making war for us, he is actively making war so that we might experience and enjoy a wonderful peace that lasts not momentarily, but from the moment of our conversion all the way through eternity. But the way that we get here is by understanding the victorious nature of Christ's cross, and then not only from understanding the victorious nature of Christ's cross, seeing that victory played out, not just at the cross of Christ, but seeing how he is continuing in that victorious conquest in our day and also as we look forward to the final day. And so if I were to sum up my intentions today as we approach this, it is to embolden and it is to strengthen. It is so that we look at our Lord Jesus Christ and see him not as feeble or frail, but as a manly warrior who goes out to conquer his enemies and has wonderfully and magnificently placed the boot of the church on the head of Satan. And so with that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Romans chapter 16, we'll start in verse 17 and make our way through verse 20. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter 16, starting in verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and and create obstacles contrary to the doctrines that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites and by smooth talk and their own appetites and by uh, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray together. Father, I come asking, Lord, for visions of grandeur. Lord, please do not allow us to have a low view of the strength of our God. Please do not permit us to have a low view of your conquering power. Instead, Lord, may you show yourself to be the man of war that brings perfect peace. Lord, would you embolden our hearts, give us hearts aflame with confidence, knowing that not only we have access to the beautiful, wonderful, majestic God to dwell forever with him, but that all of his enemies will be cast out of that place, never to cause disruption, dismay, or harm ever again. Lord, give us a delight and a desire for that wonderful peace and strengthen our legs as we strive to make our way there. It's the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. To give you the immediate context before we dive into the actual exposition of this verse, As the Apostle Paul writes to warn of false teachers and to those who sow discord and to those who cause harm essentially inside the household of faith, you can imagine a statement like that. A statement that is essentially indicating that there are various enemies inside and and Scripture is quite clear that they even rise up from within. That in the midst of that, there could be a bit of fear and trembling of of the days ahead. Perhaps it is that you can imagine immediately as a certain trial is on the horizon, your, your, your knees begin to buckle slightly. And perhaps it is that it's not just a sin issue. Perhaps it's not a false teacher or anything of that nature, but you share essentially the common experience that when trials are on the horizon, when difficulties are ahead of you, it is easy to lose boldness and confidence. And what the Apostle Paul, I am convinced, is doing as he takes his turn from warning of false teachers, he begins to instantly supply and to encourage, that is to place courage within the Roman church by reminding them of the conquest of the Lord Jesus Christ and the future reality that the head of the church will rest upon the head of, that the foot of the church will rest upon the head of Satan to ultimately see him crushed underneath our feet. The purpose is to strengthen. The purpose is to make bold the church as they confront these things, as they go forth, as the militant church to go forth, to preach the gospel to the nations, to see the elect come to saving faith, and as they labor to preserve the unity within the local body. What we need is confidence. And Paul supplies it in bulk. So let's look first and foremost at our text in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Previously, I did an exposition of the God of peace. I would like to do another one, but I would like to do it in a different direction because interestingly enough, as Paul cites here, the God of peace, he immediately takes into account particular violence that will be expressed from that God of peace. That there is a war to be had, that there is a victory to be won. And here the concept of crushing underfoot Satan is in perfect contrast, in perfect unity, I better yet, with the God of peace. So how should we understand the God of peace in a sense that causes us to be strengthened in our warfare today as we make our way to that final day? First, we need to understand that the God of peace is not a pacifist. The God of peace is not a pacifist. The God of peace is explicitly stated to be a warrior. Exodus 15, three says this, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Meaning that when we consider this concept of peace, we are not considering a man who is sitting back and permitting evil to occur to the detriment of all around him. That is not what is being considered when Paul invokes the concept or the name, the God of peace. Instead, he is considering the great warrior that will go forth 
forth and conquer all so as to make perfect peace. To give you a few citations so that your view of the God of peace is not inept or anemic. Exodus 15, 3, again, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Psalm 24, 8, who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Psalm 110, the most quoted Old Testament reference in the new. The Lord is at your right hand. Listen to the language. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And I'm convinced that many of us would look at that and say, ah, that does not scream the God of peace, saints. It screams loudly the God of peace. For he makes war and he establishes peace and he does so through the conquest of his enemies. We should see him as the man of war as we hear the phrase, the God of peace. Revelation 19, 11 through 21 paints this incredible picture of our warrior king. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. Diadems likely representing the kingdoms that he has conquered. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And saints, I'm telling you, this Screams the God of peace. And it is a unique comfort to view him as such. Oftentimes, when we consider him, we consider him as, and and, and this is not erroneous, but it is, but it is a half-truth. We consider him as the merciful and gracious God, and we forget, we forget that his mercy and his graciousness will be conquering all of his people's foes. We spent a few months looking at Jonah and Nahum so that we could understand more fully that it is the mercy of God that destroys Nineveh. It reminds us that his mercy on his people is often expressed in the destruction of those enemies who would do them great harm. And so we see the God of peace as the man of war. We never nullify this. We do not make his wrath any less fierce so as to satiate the lost. No, we say this is the God who is a warrior, who will crush all his enemies, who will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. And what's important for us to understand is that in his warring, he does not lose the title God of peace. Instead, it is reinforced. If I could maybe lay out a couple of situations that are often considered when we think about God making war. First, he is the God of peace when he floods the world. Brothers and sisters, in Genesis 6, you are not seeing God act vindictively. You are seeing God act justly. And as you see him act justly, he is preserving peace. Listen to what Genesis 6, 5 says. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. 
This is the nation that he crushes. These are the people that he wipes out, but all the while preserving a particular people. You imagine, we often consider Noah making his way off the ark. What a wondrously peaceful place up until the point Noah began to sin in it. He wages war and brings and preserves peace. Further, he is the God of peace when he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen to what Genesis 18, 20 through 21 says. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and and remember saints, these are most likely some people in Sodom and Gomorrah, likely and perhaps even Lot himself, but also the nations around them are crying out concerning the wickedness and the grave sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 21, it says, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Genesis 19, four through five demonstrates the depravity and the wickedness of this horrendous city that is given over to sin. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, that is rather explicit language to indicate that every single individual in the city is beating on Lot's door so as to commit all types of wickedness and sin against these men. Listen to what it says. And they called out Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. This is a violent and perverse city. And in the midst of God going forth and conquering this city, he is demonstrating his desire to bring about perfect peace through conquest. And so he conquers Sodom and Gomorrah. He lays waste to it. And you imagine all those who cried out against the city were immediately blessed by a wondrous peace that was provided by the conquering of Sodom and Gomorrah. He is the God of peace when he judges Egypt. Listen to Exodus 6, 5 through 7. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel when the Egyptians, who the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This means, saints, that in the midst of the blood, the frog, the locust, the livestock being killed, every single plague, including that of the death of the firstborn, God is acting as the God of peace. And he is establishing that peace. And he is delivering his people so as to demonstrate that he is the God of peace to his people. And he does indeed provide that. And so we do not look at the exodus and say, uh, see God make war. We say, see God make war for his people. See God redeem his people. See See God provide peace for his people to bring them out from under that yoke of slavery and bondage. So not only is he the God of peace when he brings about the Exodus, he is also the God of peace when he conquers Canaan. One of the most normative statements against God's character is, ah, but he wiped out the Canaanites. It's an exhausting argument. But listen to what Genesis 15, 14 through 15 says, should you feel the need to lay this case out for anyone. Genesis 15, 14 through 15 says this, but I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old, good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Listen to this. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Do you know what that wonderfully demonstrates? God's patience and long suffering. God was patient 
And he did suffer long the wickedness that was taking place in Canaan. But when God sent Israel in there to conquer, God was providing a land of rest for his people. And he empowered that conquest. He made war against those who had caused all types of violence in the land. Joshua 24, 8, at the conclusion of the conquest, he says this, Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. This is the God of peace at war. In the midst of that war, what you have is a people who have entered into a land and are finding unique rest there. Further, he is the God of peace when he destroys Nineveh. And this is perhaps one of the loudest proclamations of the God of peace acting as a man of war to establish peace. Listen to the conclusion of the book of Nahum. And if there was any book that I would say is perhaps the most violent book in the Old Testament, it would have to be the book of Nahum. Listen to what the conclusion of the book is, though. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. Speaking of Nineveh, all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? The God of peace waging war, laying waste Nineveh so as to establish peace, so as to relieve those who are crying out to him. And finally, he is the God of peace when he crushed the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 53, I want you to hear this language. We must not overlook it. Isaiah 53, 5, and then also verse 10. This is what it says. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Yet, in verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. You know, one of the things that I find to be most frustrating is that we forget that we deserve to be conquered in Nineveh, that we deserve to be cast out of Canaan, that we deserve to be cast into hell. But by the grace of the God of peace, he crushed us in his son. And as he crushed us in his son, he establishes perfect peace. He never stays the sword of justice. He executes it with perfection. And in our case, for the elect of God, he sheathed it in the side of the Savior. And this reality is the anchor point in which the church should be emboldened and strengthened. The God of peace makes war for us. He makes war for his people. It is even more unique than delivering people out of Egypt. It is delivering people from their sin and death. It is delivering people from hell itself, delivering people from God's wrath by the wrath of God being poured out on the beloved son. And in so doing, he establishes perfect peace. And finally, he will be the God of peace when he returns to judge the world. Saints, If we are not like those who clap their hand over Nineveh when the God of peace returns to make all his enemies his footstool, then we have missed the picture that is laid out for us in Holy Scripture. He is the God of peace and he establishes peace for us by conquering all of his enemies. We rejoice in the reality that everything will be made his footstool. And this is what is in view when the Apostle Paul longs to embolden the church in their continued progress in the Christian life. Peace will be given to you by the God of peace, and it comes through his active warfare against his enemies. Because in the language here, you have to know the concept of peace and battle. We cannot detach this two in this verse. They are perfectly linked together so as to say it is the God of peace who crushes his enemies. 
And so the reason that I am convinced that this is the language is because we need to understand that the God of peace is meant to embolden us and to grant us confidence in the reality that Satan will indeed one day be underneath our boot. This is the God of peace. And we must also recognize before we go into the promise cited that the God of peace does not make promises like we do. The God of peace, when he says quite clearly that he will crush underneath our feet the head of Satan, is not a promise so as to say this may eventually come about. The Lord Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, has never once uttered any sense of we lost the battle, but we will win the war. He wins every battle. And he has won them from start to end, and he will win them up until the point that perfect peace is established. He does not promise like our earthly fathers do. Even the most well-meaning still are frail and feeble. They cannot guarantee their own breath tomorrow. When the God of peace promises, we rest knowing that he promises from his decree. This is the well-fluffed pillow of the church that when God promises, he has already decreed that it will come to fruition. He's simply letting you know that this will come to pass so that we might rest and be comforted. And so he promises from his decree that this Satan will one day be underneath the feet of the church. Now, perhaps it is that you have already reached back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and thought to yourself, ah, This is the promise that's in view. And I'll read that to you for a moment. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And perhaps it is that you have asked the appropriate question, but Lawson, hasn't this promise already been fulfilled? Yes, it has. It has already been fulfilled. Now, This concept of seed would have been something that would have been traced by the Jewish mind looking forward to the Messiah, but there were always these concepts of of misunderstanding. Perhaps this is the means of victory over and against Satan. But hear me, Satan was not crushed when the flood came. After the flood, after Noah made his way off the ark, Satan was perfectly intact. He had not been cast out. He had not been defeated. His head was whole. At the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Satan was still alive and well. He was perfectly functioning to deceive the nations. In the Exodus, when the, when the Israelites were delivered, Satan still whole as he can be, making war against God and his people. It wasn't fulfilled in the conquest of Canaan. Satan's head again was perfectly intact after the land was conquered, even in the midst of them becoming like the land they conquered in the book of Judges. Satan was alive and well. When Nineveh fell, even then the concept of a a typological Satan being the head of that city, still even then, Satan was whole. How then was he crushed? He was crushed by the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. We look at these acts of wars that take place throughout the Old Testament and we think what magnificent demonstration of strength and power and authority and dominion. Hear me, saints. There has never been a greater demonstration of power and authority and dominion than looking unto the cross of Christ and seeing God make war against all his enemies in that place. And so how does this happen then? 
It is not in all of these ways. It's through the finished work of Jesus Christ. But how does Jesus Christ then ultimately crush the head of the serpent? First, Jesus crushes the head of the serpent by becoming a servant as the seed of woman. All the promises of God birth forth in the book of Matthew when the Lord Jesus Christ is incarnate, when he comes and that blessed name is given him, Jesus, who will save his people from their sin. It is in this moment when all the Old Testament promises begin to make their way to fruition as the Lord Jesus Christ comes, then we can say with great certainty, the seed of woman is here and the seed of the serpent better tremble. And so he becomes truly God and truly man to dwell among us. And not only that, we see somewhat of a pregame battle, if you would, in Matthew 4, when Satan goes forth to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ and fails at every turn, almost directly imitating that which took place in the garden when he tempted Adam and Eve. And yet the second Adam is infinitely better than the first. He does not fail in a less than perfect environment on no food, on no water. As Satan comes to assail him, the Lord Jesus Christ stands in perfection. And even this, you can imagine, is the first blow to the, to the serpent, knowing this is not like Adam. But then it is in the moment when the world goes dark. And the Lord Jesus Christ is lifted up on the tree and he is nailed there, crown of thorns shoved onto his head, back split wide open from whips upon whips upon whips. It is there that Satan's head is crushed. This is the pinnacle of warfare of our God of peace. He crushes Satan underneath his boot at the cross of Christ. And in particularly, saints, it is not just him crushing the head of the serpent. It is our deliverance itself that crushes the head of the serpent. We do not say that Christ is victorious because he died. We say Christ is victorious because he perfectly atoned for his people. It is the substitution that he makes that dismantles and disarms the enemy. There are those that would argue it is the death of Christ in and of itself that is the pinnacle, that the primary point of it is to demonstrate that he is victorious over Satan. Saints, that is not the primary point of the cross of Christ. The primary point of the cross of Christ is substitutionary atonement, that he stands in the gap between us, that he bears the wrath of God for us, that we might experience peace upon our souls from that same God. This is what ultimately delivers us and crushes the head of the serpent, removes all of his warfare, conquers him in every way. The primary point of the cross of Christ is the deliverance of his people. The ramification of that is Satan is defeated. He is defeated. There is no charge. There's nothing that he can bring against the elect of God any longer. Satan is conquered by the finished work of Christ to redeem his people. Let me lay this out for you according to the scriptures. Why is substitution itself the act of Christ to redeem his people, the crushing of Satan's head. First, it disarms the rulers and authorities by silencing their accusations. Listen to Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You notice the primary point here is that our sins have been forgiven. A record of debt has been canceled, being nailed to the cross of Christ. And we have been forgiven and ultimately set free. And then he says this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, a laughing stock 
by triumphing over them in him. The deliverance of the church is the conquest, is the conquering of Satan. Romans 8.33, not only are they put to open shame, all of, their, all of their accusations are completely silenced in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Isn't it interesting that that loud mocking voice of Satan is ultimately silenced knowing that that Christ has died, that Christ has died and more than that, he lives and more than that, he intercedes for us. There is no charge you can bring against God's elect because all the charges were laid on the Lord Jesus Christ. They were nailed to the cross and the record of debt has been canceled. So Satan's accusations are silenced. He is disarmed. He is made to look the fool. Second, we are loosed from slavery to fear of death wielded by the devil. Listen to Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those, us, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Post the finished work of Jesus Christ, saints, are you right to fear death? Tell me. Does it not have a new ring to it? Is it not the means by which the majority of us, if not all of us, will make our way into the presence of God forevermore? Is it not that last breath that we breathe that Satan would love to have us fear and tremble at the concept? Is it not that last breath that ultimately brings us into the presence of God? Saints, we have no ground for fear of death. Death has ultimately lost its primary sting because death would be that which would separate us from our Savior. But in reality, based upon the finished work of Christ, it ushers us into his presence. There should be no fear of death. Ultimately, it's been defeated. The Lord Jesus Christ, as this text says, through death, destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the, de the devil, and delivered all those who, th who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I'm no longer enslaved to fear because your greatest weapon of war has been crushed in the cross of Christ. Fear has no place. Third, through this, Satan is cast out and bound. Perhaps one of the most pivotal shifts in my own mind as I was preaching through the book of John came from John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. May I make a parallel? Revelation 12, I am convinced, gives us insight into this statement. The now there is clearly making reference to Christ's glorification. In the book of John, that's making reference to his crucifixion. The glorification of the Son is his being lifted up to be crucified, according to John. Revelation 12, 9 through 11 says this, And the great dragon was thrown down. 
the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown out. He has no audience any longer who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. It seems to me that there is a rather clear parallel between John 12 and Revelation 12. The judgment of this world and the ruler being cast out, I am convinced, is very clearly seen in a spiritual reality in Revelation 12. Hear me. The cross of Christ exercises, removes Satan. It conquers him in the truest sense of the word. It is the crushing of his head. It is the removal of his authority. It is, it is essentially the destruction of any accusation that he can make against the church. And Mark 3, 26 through 27 goes on to say it this way. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man. The cross of Christ is the binding of the strong man. It locks him down. It removes from him his authority to accuse, to exercise fear of death over the church. It conquers him. And then going on, then indeed he may plunder his house. Saints, since the cross of Christ, God has been plundering the house of Satan. He has conquered him underfoot. He has bound him. And as he binds him, he is ever constantly plundering his house, rescuing and redeeming the elect of God. Now, if I were to summarize, in short, through the cross of Christ, Satan's devices are dismantled. He no longer can accuse us before God, for he has been cast out. He can no longer accuse us in conscience, for it is Christ that died, and more than that was raised, more than that who ever lives to mediate for me. He cannot lock us in slavery to fear of death, for death has been given a wondrously sweet ring. Though I may suffer in my dying, my death is a doorway to life everlasting with a triune God and a world of love. Satan is humiliated, all his deceitful plans thwarted. Christ is triumphant. The God of peace, true to his name, establishes peace through the crushing of Satan's head. Conqueror. And it is likely that many would still look at the cross of Christ and think, ah, oh, a battle lost. No, the war won. And so you see in the midst of this, the whole goal here, frankly, was to fill this cup up so that we can now drink of verse 20. Christ has conquered, crushed the head of the serpent. It is there that we see the greatest victory in the life of redemptive or in the, the span of redemptive history. But there is a future victory that is in view in our text. And so to fill it up, to understand that Christ crushed the head of the serpent, but what should we then glean from this particular statement that we find in verse 20? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. First, we must note, saints, it is the God of peace who crushes Satan. It is so easy and I can't even imagine the levels of bad teaching that come from this verse of people saying, hey, you go crush Satan underneath your foot. That's not what this text says. 
As a matter of fact, it explicitly tells you who will crush Satan's head. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It is God who is the active one and the defeat and the continual crushing of Satan. Luther's mighty fortress, I think, perfectly sums this up when he says, Do we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. It is the reality that Christ in his infinite grace has not only conquered, but desires to make us conquerors through his conquest. And he says, put your boot here and let me drive it through the head of the serpent. It is only Christ, it is only our God, that God of peace that destroys and ultimately crushes the head of the serpent, that crushes the head of Satan. Yet he in great kindness allows us the privilege of seeing the church's heel drive straight through. Second, he will place our foot on the head of Satan. And I think this is evidence. It is meant to be an emboldening again for the church of God. Why does he place our boot there? Can the church not simply look back and watch as the Lord Jesus Christ has driven his heel, driven his boot through the head of Satan? But ultimately, I'm convinced that there is intended here proof. First, he places our foot on the head of Satan to prove that Satan's present attacks on the elect of God are useless and impotent against God's elect. Saint, he cannot take you. John 10 attests to this loudly. There is no scheme of Satan that can pluck you from the Father's hand. If you be in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are there with great safety and surety. And it is true, it is the truest of true that Satan's head will be crushed underneath your foot, not by your might, but because of the might of the Lord Jesus Christ. It proves Satan's attacks are impotent. Secondly, it proves that Satan is defeated and his accusations hollow. How sweet is it, saint? When the accusations make their way to your ear, they erupt perhaps within your own soul that that the previous sins that you have committed were too great. They were too grievous. When the accuser of the brethren makes his way to your ear and you meet him with, it is Christ who died. More than that, who was raised. More than that, whoever lives to mediate for me. His accusations ring hollow in the shouts of the gospel. Further, this proves the fear of death is lost. There is no ground for the saint to fear death. Some of you have watched loved ones die both with great confidence and in deep sorrow. But hear me, saints. The reality is that as you make your way there, there is no ground for fear. For death is dead and Christ is one. The reality is that as we die, we go on to life and to life everlasting. Though we die, yet we live and we live forever. The fear of death is lost. It has a hollow sound in our ear. Third, he will do this soon. And I will tell you that there was internal debate in my own soul, but I think there's really two ways that we can consider this. First, it is in the reality that when we die, Satan has lost his ability to lay hold of us at all. And Matthew Henry and John Gill are in agreement. I'd like to lay out just their quotes here because I think they're rather helpful. This is rather to be applied to the victory which all the saints shall have over Satan when they come to heaven and shall be forever out of his reach together with the present victories which which through grace they obtain in earnest of that. Hold out therefore faith and patience yet a little while when when we have once got through the sea 
We shall see our spiritual enemies dead on the shore and triumphantly sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Get the church a tambourine. Praise be to God. Our enemies are defeated upon the shore. Not only are they defeated upon the shore, we know that the hand of Satan cannot touch us once we are safely brought home. John Gill goes on to affirm, Yea, this may be applied to the, cost of every, to the case of every believer now, and be for his encouragement to be vigilant and on his guard against Satan, to resist him, repel his temptations, and oppose his emissaries, since he may assure himself he shall be more than a conqueror over him through Christ that is loved him and that in a very little while when death comes he shall enter into the joy of his lord where he will be out of reach of satan and unmolested by him it is as if the gates of heaven have at its entrance the crushed head of satan and every member of the church of god is encouraged put your boot here now the reality is there is intention in Paul's statement. The intention is to embolden. The intention is to strengthen. And I am convinced that the conquest of Canaan gives us a wonderful view into this. Joshua chapter 10 has one of the most unique passages of conquest um, in the scriptures because a city's defeated. But in Joshua 10, 22 through 25, there is a peculiar practice that takes place. Listen to what it says. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out, out, out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, I want you to hear this because I am convinced that this is the intention of the apostle Paul as he is pinning this to us. And Joshua said to him, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Question, how differently do you think the men went out to war after this event? I mean, they made war and they had just seen a miraculous thing. But what a wondrous reality as those who are making warfare. They are still men going out. And as they go out, they are reminded that the boot of previous kings has already fallen underneath their heel. And all they would need to do in the midst of their foot being on their neck is to step a bit firmly and watch them be crushed underfoot. Saying the intention of Paul writing this is to embolden and strengthen the church that as you make your way through this life, you are not in constant fear and trembling before the enemy. Instead, you know he is defeated. He has been defeated in the cross of Christ and there will be a day when I enter into the wonderful presence of Christ where I will see that he is not only crushed underneath the foot of Christ, but Christ is so pleased to show the church that the church itself will stomp him out. We have a woefully frail concept of spiritual warfare. We give Satan far too much dominion, authority, and power. Hear me, the cross of Christ crushed him. And we live in a perpetual victory from that moment up until the final day. 
And that final day, sin and death will be made the footstool of our God and King. Death will be no more. Not only will it not be something to fear, it will no longer exist for the church of God. And we will go and dwell there forever, enjoying our great God and King, enjoying the God of peace who made war for us that we might rest in Him. Let's pray together.